Well, as I said, we are um, in our third message in Acts chapter 15, and um, uh, last week uh, some members of my family said, well, I think we have heard all we need to hear about circumcision and the role of circumcision. Um, and, um, and I, I suppose that that is probably true, but I think it's very important that we um, understand the issues very clearly about what um, is taking place in this chapter. And uh, I think we must say just a word or two more about the council in Jerusalem, of which most of this chapter, uh, chapter's material is devoted to. Uh, so before we move on, a word or two more about this. Um, and more specifically concerning what it was and what it wasn't about, the council, the issues that were at stake. And it's necessary to do this because some people who haven't really understood the issues involved in this chapter have been led into many serious errors in which they interpret some of the things that are said in this chapter and some of the things that Paul says elsewhere to mean that God's law has no ongoing relevance uh, in, in the modern world, or really since the time of Christ, and that, they suppose, the law in its entirety is obsolete, that it's passed away, that it's been abolished, uh, that we now live in an age of grace which absolves us from the requirement of obedience to God and his commandments. Uh, sure, God would like us to obey him, they suggest, but it's not really necessary. And they come to this conclusion because they fail to make some important distinctions within the law. The council, you'll remember in this chapter, rejected the proposition which is mentioned in verse 5. It is necessary to circumcise the Gentiles and to order them to keep the law of Moses. As I say, the council rejected this. It is not necessary, they said, for the Gentiles to be circumcised and to keep the law of Moses. And many people have assumed that the law in its entirety is meant, that it's not incumbent upon the Gentiles to keep the law. But we have to understand this statement um, within the scope of the discussion that was being had at the Council of Jerusalem, which had to do not with the law as a whole, but with the ceremonial elements of the law. Okay, this is a very, very important distinction to make, that there are different kinds of commandments given in the Old Testament law. Traditionally, there have been three types of commandments or three types of law mentioned in the Old Testament. That is moral law, ceremonial law, and judicial law, which kind of grows out of the moral law. Uh, John Frame, a famous theologian, Uh, and well-deserved, explains it this way. He says, The moral law is our fundamental responsibility toward God as set forth in the creation ordinances, those things revealed about God and his will for man at the time of creation, and in the Ten Commandments. Ceremonial law, he says, has to do with the Aaronic priesthood, animal sacrifices, annual feasts, circumcision, the Day of Atonement, laws of uncleanness, and other matters. And judicial law, often called civil law, includes crimes punishable by the state and the penalties required for them. Now, you've probably, as you've read the Bible, as you've read the Old Testament through the legal portions of the Old Testament, you've probably noticed some of these distinctions yourself, even though you may not have clearly identified them. You've noticed that there are different kinds of commandments that are given. There are some commandments that deal very directly with moral and ethical concerns and others with religious ritual that don't seem to have any ethical bearing whatsoever. There's nothing inherently good or evil, for instance, about eating or abstaining from certain kinds of foods. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, food will not commend us to God. 
We are no worse off if we do eat and no better off if, uh, I'm sorry, we're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Um, in another place, he will say that, that uh, the kingdom of God does not consist in eating and drinking, um, but in righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. So there are certain elements of the law that God commanded the people of Israel for a time that didn't really have an ethical or moral bearing. There's nothing inherently good or evil about circumcision or ritual washings or the observance of holy days and so on. But other things do have inherent ethical implications. Murder is inherently evil. So is stealing and bearing false witness and adultery and so on. All right, so those things will always be wrong. The distinction between moral and ceremonial law, by the way, is not an invention of theologians. Uh, the, the distinction is recognized in Scripture itself, though without the use of these precise terms. It's recognized, for example, in the book of the prophet Isaiah, the dis- this distinction between moral and ethical commandments of God and those having to do with ritual, the, the, the um, way of worship in the Old Testament with the priesthood and the offering of sacrifices and so on. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11 through 14, Isaiah, on God's behalf, brings an indictment against Israel. He says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams, the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Now, as we read this, we might think, but wait a minute. Didn't God command these things? Didn't he command the people of Israel to bring sacrifice and offering, burnt offering, to observe new moons and holy days as days set aside for certain worship practices and and teaching and the law and and things like these? Uh, Well, he did, but we get a clue as to what, He means by condemning the practice of these things in the next couple of verses. He goes on to say, When you spread out your hands in worship, in supplication, in prayer, and accompanying these sacrifices and offerings, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not answer you. Your hands are full of blood. He means bloodshed, violence. They had committed violent acts. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil from your deeds from before evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. So I think you can see from this passage and others that God is far less concerned about sacrifice and offering than he is about his people doing good and avoiding evil. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. And the same point is made in the book of the prophet Micah. Micah chapter 6, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil as as an offering? If a little is good, maybe more is better. Let me bring him an abundance of these things. Is this what the Lord requires of me? These various forms of worship and sacrifice. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? 
This is what Israel is saying in response to God after being rebuked by him for transgression. What does God require of me? What sacrifice is great enough to atone for what I have done? And then God answers, or the prophet does, on God's behalf. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. What is it that God requires? All of these sacrifices, all of these ritual elements of worship, multiplied times a thousand? No. What God delights in, what he requires of his people, that we deal equitably with our neighbor, that we do justice, that we love kindness, and that we walk humbly with God. You see the distinction between those things that related to ritual elements of worship, ceremonial things, versus things that are inherently ethical or moral in character. And this is what's going on in the book of the prophet Hosea also when he says, God says, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. In other words, he prefers that his people deal equitably with their neighbors, that they be faithful, true, and loving and kind, which is really what it means to know God. Who is it who knows God? All The one who knows all the details of Leviticus and how the offering is supposed to be uh, laid bare, how it's supposed to be killed, what portions go on the altar to go to God, what portion goes to the priest, what portion goes to the worshiper, and all these fine details of Ritual sacrifice? Is that what God, is that what it means to know God? No. What it means to know God is that we love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we love our neighbor as ourselves, we deal equitably, justly with our neighbor, we show kindness and mercy when it's in our power to do so, to help those who are in need, and we walk humbly with Him, meaning we receive His instructions, His commandments, and we live obediently to Him. These are the things that delight God, and this is what it means to know God. So in all of these passages and a number, number of others that we could cite, you can see that there is a distinction which is made between moral and ceremonial commandments. And this is what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians also when he says, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Again, he's making a distinction between different kinds of commandments. Circumcision was indeed commanded, but it was not the same kind of commandment as love the Lord your God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, right? You see? Give me some feedback. Yes? Nod? Shake your head? No? You see the difference between these various kinds of commandments, When the council, therefore, rejected the proposition that the Gentiles must be circumcised in order to keep the law of Moses, we have to understand this in light of the distinction between commandments, between moral and ceremonial laws, because it was specifically the elements of the ceremonial law that were under consideration. These were the things that were being discussed. Now, the same distinction needs to be made when we come to read the Apostle Paul in a number of his letters and with respect to some of the things that he says about the law. For instance, in Romans 3.28, he says, For we hold that we hold that one is not I'm sorry, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Many fail to understand that what he means by the works of the law um, are these ceremonial aspects. They read, Paul is saying, we are saved, we are justified apart from obedience to God. 
In other words, it doesn't matter how we live, in obedience to God's law or disobedience to God's law, we're justified by faith. If we have faith, then obedience is not required. But that's not what Paul is saying in that passage. And they take his statement in Romans 6.14 in a similar way, when he says, you are not under law, but under grace. They believe that he means that grace has abolished the law, that grace has nullified the law, replaced the law entirely, that faith in Christ and the grace that comes with it frees us from all obligation to keep God's commandments. This position, by the way, is known as antinomianism. Big fancy word that theologians like to use, but it's uh, very precise in what it means. It comes from two Greek words, anti, from which we get our English word anti. And if you're anti something, what does that mean? You're against it, right? You're against it. So anti, from Greek, against, namos, which is the Greek word for law. These are, this is an antinomian position, meaning those who are against God's law. Um, they tend to see grace as being incompatible with law, that they're two opposing rather than complementary principles. We see God dealing with people throughout the Bible, um, both in legal terms as well as in gracious terms. And this is true both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. However, those who take an antinomian view often view the matter as a distinction in history. The Old Testament was an age of law. The New Testament is an age of grace. We live in the age of grace, ergo, therefore, we are not under law, but we are under grace. And therefore, there's no need for us to obey God's law. But this is a fundamental misunderstanding of the situation, and it's a very, but it's a very common misunderstanding and a very dangerous one, and that's why we're spending some time on this. The passages in which Paul seems to speak disparagingly of the law have to be read in the light of the issues raised here in Acts chapter 15. In other words, in light of this illicit use of the law, the illicit use that some people made of the law in the first century. In 1 Timothy, Paul writes, Now we know that the law is good if, if, that's one of the biggest words in the English language. Two, two letters, but one of the biggest words in the English language in terms of its implications. We know that the law is good. Does anybody know what the next few words say? If one uses it lawfully. The law is good if one uses it lawfully. But the law was not always used lawfully, was it? And that's precisely the point. Some people sought to use the law as a means of justification or as a way of being saved, as we've said before. But such a thing in the very nature of the case is impossible. The justification could come by means of the law. I suppose we could say that the law could justify someone who had never sinned in that the law in that case would illustrate the person's righteousness, right? Jesus, for instance, he obeyed the law perfectly, never transgressed. Remember, we were speaking before John the Baptist, 
And he says it's necessary for us to fulfill all righteousness. And Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. He did everything that God commanded under the law. He did everything that God told him to do specifically as the Messiah and going to the cross and all the different things in his life that he did. It was in direct response to the will and purpose and command of God. He fulfilled all righteousness. And in that case, the law illustrates the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But for those of us who are sinners, which means every one of us in this room and everyone who has ever lived in history except our Lord, the law does not and cannot justify us. It can only condemn us. Once we have broken the law, the law condemns and it can never justify or save. Paul says, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But no law could do this. It's not in the nature of law to do it. Life can only come to sinners by way of God's loving kindness, his mercy, his grace. This is why Paul said, you are not under law, but under grace. You, have, you are not under law as a means of salvation or a way of being justified. Rather, you are under grace as a means of justification. So then the law is bad, right? No. Remember what Paul said, the law is good if one uses it lawfully, meaning for its intended purpose. In another place, he says the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Moses said, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for your good. The law is given to us for our good. When we obey the law, when we walk in God's ways, it has a tendency to make the roadway, the pathway of life smooth, easy for our feet. Not that trials and afflictions don't come, and not that sometimes those who oppose God might not persecute, but in terms of, of uh, the consequences of our decisions, um, it tends to make life smooth. You've heard the statement, life is hard. It's harder if you're stupid, right? We could say life is hard. It's harder if you're a sinner, right? Intention, that means intentionally defying God and going on and breaking God's commandments. All right, so the law is given to us for our good. All right. So God's commandments are good and they are holy and they're right. And he requires that we obey him. He doesn't merely suggest that we obey him. He commands it. This is implied, by the way, in the necessity of repentance. Repentance is one of the major themes of the entire Bible, not just Old Testament, but New Testament as well. Jesus began his ministry by saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is how he begins his ministry, and consistently throughout his ministry, we find him saying similar things. Now, what is repentance? It's a change from disobedience to obedience. It's it's a return from disobedience to obedience. When Jesus sent out the twelve, two by two, to preach, it says, so they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. Jesus at one point characterized his own ministry by saying, I have come to call sinners to repentance. In another place, he said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. 
And then a few verses, a few verses later, he repeated it. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. After his resurrection, as he was explaining the recent events, his crucifixion, his betrayal, crucifixion, his resurrection, he's, be, he's describing these things, explaining them to the disciples. He says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to his, in his name to all nations. So again, repentance is turning from disobedience to obedience. Obedience to what or to whom? Well, to God and to his, to his law, to his commandments. Without repentance, there is no forgiveness. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus has become the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. To all who obey him. And the writer of Hebrews again says, he admonishes us to strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. All right? It is simply not true that God does not expect us to obey him. I mean, I, I have to emphasize this point because there is a teaching that is current in evangelical, the evangelical world that so emphasizes grace that it essentially negates, sometimes by way of implication, but sometimes very explicitly stated, it negates the responsibility of the recipient of that grace, of, uh, negates the responsibility of repentance and consequent obedience. This is, this is not merely wrong, it is heretical. Um, obedience is, some, is what God is after. An obedience that stems from the heart, a heart that wishes to please God, a heart that loves God and wishes to please him by rendering obedience. This is, a, this is the only proper response to the grace that we have received. Not, oh God, thanks for forgiving me of my sin. Your grace is so great. Now I'm going to go live like the devil or do whatever I please. Not that it would be usually stated in that direction or stated so explicitly, but oftentimes that is clearly the indication when we say that the Old Testament was an era of law, New Testament is an era of grace, we live under grace, not law, and the implication is, sure, God would like your obedience, but it's not really that necessary. But when we see the consistent message of not only Jesus himself in the New Testament, but his apostles, the emphasis on repentance, it becomes very obvious, I think, that obedience is, is required. So it is not true that grace absolves us of the responsibility of obedience. In fact, just the opposite is true. Paul says in Titus, the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. What does the grace of God do? It teaches us to renounce a sinful style of life. It teaches us to exercise self-control so that we can, we can lead lives that are pleasing to God, lives that are godly and righteous in this present age. So don't listen to anyone who would teach you otherwise. For as the Apostle John says, many false prophets have gone out into the world and they teach what I would regard as damnable heresies in this regard. God's grace is great, but there is a responsibility that we have in response to receiving that grace, and that is to lead a life that is worthy of the gospel. With his help, the empowering of the Holy Spirit, 
and we're all going to stumble and fall, but our heart's orientation should be toward obedience to God, out of love for God. The Apostle John says in his first letter, he said, this is the love of God. Do you want to know if you love God? Here's a pretty good test. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Right? Our response is like that of David in the Psalms. Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Oh, how I love it, Lord. And we can't help but to love God's law when we love God and we know his character. Some people, it's like rather than saying, oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Their response is, oh, how I hate thy law. It is my consternation all the day. <laughs> You know, they chafe under it, they resist, and, they, and it's, it's a burden that's too difficult to bear, and they don't want it. And so they look for ways to excuse themselves from the responsibility of obedience, and they look to grace. Grace absolves us of that responsibility. But now John says, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. In other words, they're joyful to us. And yes, we do at times find ourselves in situations where we struggle with temptations. The flesh wishes to indulge itself in illicit behavior, and the heart and the mind say, no, that's not right. God says it's not right. Don't do it. And there are those moments of struggle, and Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 7, doesn't he? So there are sometimes I, I find myself doing things that I don't approve of, and there's this struggle within me, sometimes doing the very things I hate. We all, as long as we live in this world, will struggle with that from time to time. But as we grow in grace and as we mature in our walk with the Lord, the struggle will get easier for us because we become conformed more and more to the image of Christ, not just our outward behavior, but our hearts and our affections the things that we found while we were walking in the world, the things that we found ourselves loving, we now come to loathe. And the things that when we were walking in the world, we thought we wanted to hold off at arm's distance, so that's not for me, the things of God. Now we aspire to and we love and we hunger for. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And so there's a transformation by grace and through the power of the Holy Spirit that takes place over time. And the Bible calls this sanctification, this process of being made holy. And sometimes it's a painful work, but it is a work that we should welcome and be thankful for as God works it in us. All right, let's get to our text for the day, and this will be brief. That's an addendum to the last two sermons on Acts 15. All right, uh, at least verses 1 through 35. Today we're taking a brief look, very brief, I promise, at verses 36 through 41. After the council. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us turn, at return rather, and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. You might remember that from Acts chapter 13. While Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey, John Mark accompanies them for a part of the journey, engages in the labor along with Paul and Barnabas and some others as well, but then he reaches a certain point in which he turns back and he goes home. Now, there's no judgment that's made about that, nothing, it's just stated as a matter of fact. 
in Acts chapter 13. Here, Paul is alluding to this when, when it says that he didn't want to take John Mark with them on the second journey because he had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Verse 39, and there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, this is very interesting for a number of reasons. First of all, it shows us that even good and honest men can have honest disagreements. And sometimes those disagreements can be sharp enough that it leads to a parting of ways, can lead to division. Uh, There is no doubt that Paul and Barnabas looked upon each other as dear friends in Christ, that they loved each other dearly, that they had had and would continue to have sweet fellowship with each other. Uh, But they differed over what was wise with respect to the projected missionary journey. They differed with regard to what was uh, wise with respect to the role that John Mark should have in that journey. Barnabas wished to take him along, but Paul said, nope, no way. Not going to do it. And notice that this was not a doctrinal issue. <clears throat> it was not uh, a doctrinal issue. It didn't regard any judgment on Paul t- in terms of John Mark's uh, theological views. He's unworthy because he's, you know, doesn't know the truth or doesn't teach the truth. It was rather a practical and strategic matter. Paul also seems to have viewed it as a matter involving John Mark's character. Um, the, the, he thought that. John Mark didn't have the courage and the commitment necessary for the work. He showed himself unreliable in Paul's judgment on their first journey. And he hadn't in the meantime uh, proved himself enough to convince Paul that he could be trusted on a second journey. So Paul said no. Another interesting thing is that the difference between Paul and Barnabas seems to have stemmed at least in part from their different personalities. They're different personalities. You know, God has gifted us each with different personalities. And I'm glad that he did because it'd be really boring in life if everybody was the same, right? Sometimes some personalities may prove to be a trial to you, right? But don't worry, sometimes your personality proves to be a trial to others. (laughs) So it's mutual. But God is in work of sanctifying our personalities and Paul and Barnabas had different personalities and it becomes evident as we as we read in different places Um, Paul could be an in-your-face kind of guy remember what we read last week in Galatians where Paul says I confronted Cephas to his face in front of them all in front of the whole church Paul or Peter was an heir and I confronted him to his face he could be an in-your-face kind of guy very blunt very direct He demanded a lot of himself, and he demanded a lot of other people as well. He was passionate. He was zealous. We might say today he was intense and maybe a bit stubborn, too. On the other hand, remember that Barnabas, the name Barnabas, means, does anybody remember? Son of encouragement. Son of encouragement. And he was given this name by the apostles in Jerusalem. This was not the name given by his parents, but by the by the apostles, we will call you son of encouragement because they noticed, no doubt, that he was one who always hoped for and believed the best about others. He was an encourager. He wished to give other people encouragement. And there's something that's very, 
uh, agreeable, something very likable about that. Now remember how he had believed in Paul. Paul, before he became an apostle, was the chief persecutor of the church. And he would go to different places, hauling men and women into prison, punishing them for their faith in Jesus Christ, which he believed was heretical, believed was contrary to God's purposes and will for Israel. And so when he is converted on the road to Damascus and he spends a few years in and around Damascus and comes back to Jerusalem, all the brethren in Jerusalem are like, stay away from Saul of Tarsus. He claims to be a believer, but he's, he's not. Surely he's not. It's only a ruse. It's a trick. His claim to be converted and to be a follower of Jesus. It must be a trick. He's wanting to infiltrate the church. He's wanting to take names and addresses, and he's wanting to haul us off to prison. But who is it? that goes to Barn or goes to I gave it away goes to Paul and and finds out his his conversion is genuine he's a he's a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and he brings Saul to the apostles and to the wider church and says listen you can trust this guy I've talked to him he knows the Lord and he's seeking peace and he's bringing people together and he's encouraging in this way Uh, We could say, humanly speaking, that it was because of Barnabas that Paul had any standing with the apostles in the first place. And now Barnabas is doing the same thing with John Mark. Look, Paul, I I know he failed us during the first time around, but he's sorry. He really is. We've talked about it many times. He's expressed his regret. He's, He's a different person now. His heart really is in the Lord's work, and I think that he's got what it takes to endure the hardship of this travel and the threat of persecution and all of these things that turned him back before. Paul said, look, Barney, Mark Mark is your cousin, and you're allowing your relationship with him to him to cloud your judgment. I don't think he's ready. We're not taking him. No, really, Barnabas says, Mark is ready, let's take him. And Paul puts his foot down and he says, no. And so they go their separate ways. Now, I don't think we can say that either Paul or Barnabas was acting sinfully in this. As I said before, good and honest men can have honest differences of opinion. And that difference might even be significant enough to lead to division, but yet without that division being sinful. The upshot of it in this case is that there were two mission projects going on at the same time instead of just one. Rather than Paul and Barnabas going together, now they're going separately and they're accomplishing twice the amount of work. And so God was able to use even this apparent um, seemingly, and maybe there was some sin involved in it. I stopped short of finding fault with either one of them. But even if there was sin involved, nevertheless, God brought good out of it. And there was a double witness, a double missionary project that was undertaken. Barnabas takes Mark and sets sail for Cyprus. Now, why Cyprus? Remember, that's where Barnabas is from. That's his home island, as it were. And that's also the place that Paul and Barnabas first went on their first missionary journey to the island of Cyprus. But once they get there, we really have no more information about their ministry. We don't know what cities they preached in, what success or troubles they encountered while they were there. The rest of the story of the book of Acts follows uh, the ministry of the apostle Paul. Paul takes Silas, and they go through um, Syria and Cilicia and um, into the heart of modern-day Turkey from the opposite direction. But it appears that uh, they were kind of going over the same 
course that they went the first time around, but from a different direction. But as I said, the remainder of Acts follows the ministry of the Apostle Paul rather than that of Barnabas. Does this mean that Paul was right and Barnabas was wrong? I don't think so. Uh, The Holy Spirit had other reasons for highlighting the ministry of the Apostle Paul. There's every reason to believe that Barnabas and John Mark had a fruitful ministry together under the blessing of God. Now, as far as John Mark himself goes, consider what Paul says about him years later in 2 Timothy. Uh, 2 Timothy is the last letter that Paul wrote. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, He is in a prison, Paul is. He's in Rome. Uh, He has uh, been before the emperor Nero. Um, The decision has come down, it would seem, at this point. Paul knows that uh, his end um, is imminent. Uh, Some scholars believe that he's still awaiting his appearance before the emperor. But in any case, it's shortly before Paul dies. And near the end of this last letter of the beloved apostle, chapter 4, verse 9, Paul writing to Timothy, he says, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. What books did Luke write? The Gospel that bears his name and also the book of Acts, right? There's a very fond relationship between uh, Paul and Luke. And by the way, there's this new movie out about the Apostle Paul, um, in which the two main characters are Paul and Luke. Jim Caviezel, is that how you say his name? He played Jesus in The Passion of the Christ. He plays Luke, and I don't remember who the actor is who plays the Apostle Paul. But it's in Paul's last imprisonment, and I hear the movie is quite good. It just was released in theaters this weekend or maybe last weekend, I'm not sure. But at any rate, he's re- referencing Luke here. He says, Luke alone is with me. Now notice this, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Isn't that something? Back at the end of chapter 15, uh, John, or, uh, Paul tells Barnabas, no, nope, Mark is not useful in ministry. He's unreliable. Uh, he lacks commitment. He lacks intestinal fortitude, whatever it was in Paul's judgment. Um, uh, Mark lacked. Now he says... He is useful to me for ministry. Bring him with you when you come. He's useful, not just useful, very useful to me in ministry. So he had proved himself to Paul, uh, no doubt under Barnabas' discipleship and guidance and through the grace of the Holy Spirit. Mark had gained the necessary strength of character to hold up under pressure and persevere under trial. And I think that we ought to be greatly encouraged by this when we think about Mark. And I think that it should give us encouragement for us in our times of failure. Failure at first doesn't prevent success at last, especially when we have the Lord on our side and we're paying attention and doing what, uh, to the best of our ability what we believe God wishes us to do, following the instructions of Scripture, seeking to grow in grace. Whatever failures we may have had early in life, doesn't necessarily set the course for the rest of our life to be doomed to failure. Failure at first does not guarantee that there will not be success at last. So let us remember that. Let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, we give thanks to you that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is not only salvation for us, a release from the guilt and penalty of our sin, but there is also, Father, the promise of other rewards in life, Lord, that as we devote ourselves to you and as we seek to grow in the grace of the Holy Spirit and as we are conformed to the image of our Savior, Lord, there is blessing. And it may come in different forms for different people, but, Father, there is always a blessing. There is always a reward to be had when we follow hard after you. Even though there are many difficulties and there are many temptations and there are many trials and there are many who would seek to divert us from the path that you have laid for our feet, the world, our own flesh and sinful tendencies, the devil himself would seek to to divert us to the right hand or to the left. But help us, Father, to follow the straight and narrow path that you have laid for us in your word, in the commandments that we find in the law, in the encouragement and teaching of the prophets, of our Lord himself and of his apostles. Help us, Lord, to follow with all of our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you would.